Turning in the word of God to the book of Colossians chapter 1, which we read earlier, Colossians 1 and verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. Amen. Thus far we read the word of God. And it's this phrase, that in all things he might have the preeminence, that we look at especially, but seeking in so so doing, to understand the overall message of this book of Colossians. So our theme is the preeminence of Christ and the need of progressing in him. The preeminence of Christ and the need of progressing in him. The Apostle Paul wrote this letter while he was a prisoner and he wrote it to the Colossian church under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. He wrote it to a church in this very small, in this or small and very pagan town. He wrote it to a church that included Christians like Philemon, to whom the short letter Philemon is addressed, and Onesimus, the slave of Philemon, who had run away and the apostle sent him back. It was written amidst the apostle's own sufferings because the apostle was concerned. He had the care of all the churches and yet he writes his letters in the midst of personal affliction but making little reference by and large to those circumstances because his concern was for the welfare of the churches. And he writes this by the Spirit out of concern for the danger of these Colossian Christians lapsing back into pagan standards of behaviour and also because of the false antidote that was on offer. As we shall see, the false teachers who were in danger of badly affecting the Colossian church, they were offering some kind of false booster for the Christian life, some kind of special knowledge. It may be that the heresy that the apostle is combating in this letter was an early form of what later became known as Gnosticism. Gnosticism is a term derived from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. And of course that word, uh, Greek word gnosis, has come into our language. For example, agnostic is someone who says they don't know Usually, it's in connection with the existence of God. But at any rate, it seems that it was an early form of what became known as Gnosticism. And this false teaching offered uh, a certain formula to bring people into a, a special knowledge that would, as it were, lift them up above the struggles of the normal Christian life and how appealing such a, such a, a message is when Christians are in conflict with the world, the flesh and the devil. But this false teaching meant that being in Christ was seen as all right as a starter, but real progress would be made through a stiff program of rules of self-denial to attain to some special inner knowledge 
And it may well be that the heretics employed the term fullness as their buzzword, as the uh, term they used to describe this inner knowledge that they uh, promised. And this may explain why the apostle uses the term fullness in response uh, to this error, that the real fullness is in Christ. But to combat this error, the first thing the apostle does is to seek to raise their views of Christ. Error usually does stem from a low estimate of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because uh, when we have low views of Christ, when we fail to think as we ought to think of the excellency and glory and majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ, then our view of what it is to belong to Christ diminishes and therefore we are open to erroneous solutions to the battle against sin. In the professing church today, discontent with biblical teaching stems from low views of the Christ of Scripture. The desire for novelty in doctrine or the novelty of not having any doctrine, novelty in worship, novelty in church life, uh, entertainment and so on. It's due to a low view of Christ when people become bored with the teaching of God's word and the ordinances of God and they become bored with these things because they have a low estimate of our Lord Jesus Christ. And even though Christ's redeeming work and the application of it by the Spirit to sinners are things that angels desire to look into, a generation of professing evangelicals has arisen who are not fascinated by these things, but are bored with them. And so they turn aside to novelty. And uh, part one form of false teaching which has made its appearance at different times is the idea of some special experience that will lead to instant sanctification. The battle with sin will be over even though we're not in heaven and this is, the, this is what's on offer. And of course there is an appeal to this as we've said. It seems that in Colossae, the same two-tier idea was being put about by the false teachers. But it wasn't through some special experience. It was through some kind of special inner knowledge. An inner and supposedly higher knowledge that was divorced from the knowledge of Christ and progress in Christ. And uh, it was making some progress. And the apostle writes to combat this. And so he seeks to bring before them the excellency of Christ. And if their hearts were drawn out to see the glory of the Redeemer, then these, these views that dishonoured the Redeemer would uh, pale and fade away. Why does the ecumenical movement make progress if it is not because uh, professing Christians uh, cease to be jealous for the honour and the exclusive glory and prerogatives of the Lord Jesus Christ? Error advances as our views of Christ diminish and so the apostle then is seeking to build up in them by the blessing of God a right view of Christ and his glory and so he begins by thanking God for their conversion in verse 3 we give thanks to God and the father of our Lord Jesus Christ praying always for you 
since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love which ye have to all the saints for the hope which is laid up for you in heaven whereof ye heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel which is come unto you as it is in all the world and bringeth forth fruit as it doth also in you since the day ye heard of it and knew the grace of God in truth. He gives thanks to God for their conversion to Christ. Why does he thank God for their conversion to Christ? Why does he not, why does he not congratulate them for their shrewd use of their supposed free will? Because they didn't have any. And in the scriptures, we find that thanksgiving is made to God when sinners become Christians. So in Romans 6 verse 17, But God be thanked that ye obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered unto you. Or in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 2, We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father, knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. He thanks God that they'd become Christians. And why had they become Christians when others hadn't? Well, because of the election of God. And uh, we ought then, every time we see in the scripture, the apostle thanking God for the conversion of sinners, to see in it an acknowledgement of the sovereignty of God and of the efficacious grace of God working uh, in the heart of a sinner according to the eternal election, God's purpose of eternal election, in bringing that sinner to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So he thanks God. He doesn't congratulate them and pat them on the back and say, well, you had the same sufficient grace as other people and everybody gets the same, and yet you had the insight or the uh, character, or whatever, that they didn't have, and you made the right use of it, and you did what they didn't, because you're better than they are. He doesn't do that. He thanks God, because he knew that the reason that they had become Christians was because God, who chose them in eternity, effectually called them in time. And not only does he thank God for the faith of Christians in its beginning, but also for its progress. So in 2 Thessalonians 1 and verse 3, we are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is meet, because that your faith groweth exceedingly, and the charity of every one of you all toward each other aboundeth. God begun the work, God is progressing the work, And he thanks God for its beginning and for its progress. And then he prays in Colossians for further progress. In verse 9. For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to desire that he might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding that ye might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthening, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power unto all patience and long-suffering with joyfulness. There the apostle is already in expressing what he prays for them indicating the way forward. And it's not through the package 
that the heretics are offering. He's saying, this is what we pray for because this is real progress. The right kind of knowledge. The knowledge of his will leading to godly behavior. And he reminds them of whose kingdom it is that they've been translated into. Verse 13, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. It's Christ's kingdom of grace. Christ's power extends over all in providence. But the kingdom of grace is that sphere, as it were, where in which the Spirit of God, renewing the hearts of men and women, brings them into hearty subjection to our Lord Jesus Christ through the gospel. And he's reminding them that it's Christ's kingdom that they've been brought into. And that this uh, false doctrine, which puts uh, Christ and becoming uh, united to Christ as merely being second-rate stuff, is therefore false. He reminds them of redemption by Christ. Verse 14, In whom ye have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. He's saying, before you get tangled up with this false teaching about angels and all the rest of it, Remember, Christ's blood was shed for the redemption of his people. Christ redeems his people. And if this doctrine is leading you away from Christ, then it's false. And then he proceeds to show the greatness of the Redeemer. So that brings us, first of all then, Christ's preeminence in creation. Christ's preeminence, Christ's supremacy above all in creation. He is God. Verse 15, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. Christ's preeminence in creation. And he begins by showing that Christ is God. But you see, how does the phrase who is the image of the invisible God. How does that mean that Christ is God? After all, was not man made in the image of God? And it is true that in Genesis, man is said to be made in the image of God, by which is meant that there are things that are true of God that in some measure were given to man. What the theologians call the communicable attributes of God. They mean simply that there are some things about God that are never communicated to men, but there are other things that in some limited way are communicated to men. So, for example, man is uh, a moral creature. He differs from the animals in that respect. Uh, man uh, uh, does his behavior is good or evil and he is accountable to God for that unlike animals so there are some things that are true of God that in a certain limited way are conveyed to men and it's in that sense that man is said to be made in the image of God he was made with knowledge and he was made in righteousness and true holiness. But that isn't what it means here. Christ is not made in the image of God. In fact, he isn't made at all. He is not a creature. He is the image of the invisible God. In chapter 2 and verse 9, we read, for in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Or in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3, who being the brightness of his glory 
and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power. That's speaking of Christ, that he is the brightness of the Father's glory, the express image of his person. That is the exact reflection of the Father. When men saw Christ, they beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Christ was God manifest in the flesh. Even the wind and the waves obeyed him. So when we read here that he is the image of uh, the invisible God, we are not to think of anything less than full deity. He is the exact, uh, he has all the attributes that belong to the Father. And so the Lord Jesus Christ was God. The Lord Jesus Christ received the worship of men. In Matthew 28 and verse 9, we have a fascinating verse. Matthew 28 and verse 9. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them saying, All hail! And they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. Now just think about that. They held him by the feet and worshipped him. He had feet because he was a man. And they worshipped him because he was God. We referred this morning to the person of Christ. Two distinct natures in one person forever. The fact that they could hold him by the feet shows that he had indeed become a man. Truly a man. To be the substitute of guilty men. But they worshipped him because he was God. God and man. That verse brings the two natures before us in a few words. It also shows us incidentally why it is wrong to make pictorial representation of Christ. Some people say, well, but in making pictures representing Christ, we're only representing his human nature not the divine. Therefore, it's not a breach of the second commandment. But you see, it is. And for this reason, that if the divinity of his person made it right to worship toward his human bodily presence, then that which is in its reality a right object of worship is a wrong object of image and representation. If it was right, as it was, to worship towards Christ's physical human presence because he was a divine person, then it must be wrong to seek to make an image of that divine person even in his human presence. If it's right to worship God incarnate, God manifest in the flesh toward his human presence, then it's wrong to represent that human appearance and presence of a divine person. That which is rightly worshipped is wrongly represented by man. And it is a breach of the second commandment to make images even of the supposed and purely imaginary, because we don't know what he looked like, uh, human appearance of the Redeemer. The Lord Jesus was God, and he never ceased to be God. Even when he was manifest in the flesh, he was still God, and he received the worship that is due to God alone. And he is prior 
and superior to all creation. He is prior to and superior to all creation. Verse 15, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. Firstborn here means he was prior begotten to all creation. He was prior. He existed before all things. It does not mean that he had a beginning before others had a beginning. It simply means that he was prior to them. In John 1 verse 1 we read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning. He was eternally prior to all creation. And uh, it is true that the so-called Jehovah's Witnesses, they translate that verse 1 of John 1, and the word was a God. There is no basis for such a translation. But they argue that in the Greek language, the article the is used when it means God, and if it isn't an article then it means a God. Now that is not true, and grammatically it's not true. But in case anyone has any doubts, in John chapter 20, verse 28, Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. And there it's translating what is literally the Lord mine and the God, mine. So if ever you're confronted with the so-called Jehovah's Witness, then tell them that, that it does have the article, that what they say is necessary for it to refer to God rather than a God is true in Thomas's confession. It is the Lord, mine, and the word Lord, even the uh, so-called Jehovah's Witnesses acknowledge is a word that is always used of Christ and the God, mine. And so our Bible is quite correct in translating it, my God, with a capital G. Because the Lord Jesus is God. And when it says firstborn, it's simply indicating prior existence in the beginning. But he is superior. He is the firstborn in the sense of superiority. You know that in biblical times, the firstborn became the head of the family and the head of the tribe. In this sense, uh, Christ is the firstborn. And even after his incarnation, he is the firstborn. In Psalm 89 and verse 27, a prophecy concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. Also I will make him my firstborn, higher than the kings of the earth. It's the idea of being exalted to absolute superiority. And of course our Lord Jesus when he had by himself purged our sins, his people's sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He is the heir of all things. The firstborn was the heir, and in that sense, Christ is called the firstborn because as a result of his redeeming work, he is given a name above every name. And as the God-man redeemer, he is exalted above all. And he made all things. He made all things. Our text goes on in verse 16. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, 
visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. The apostle begins in heaven, comes down to earth and then back up to heaven again. Things in heaven, things on earth, things visible, things invisible. He created them all. Our Lord Jesus, as the second person of the Godhead, is the creator of all things. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And even the mighty angels, the cherubim, the seraphim, Gabriel, Michael, the archangel, were made by him. The name Michael means who is like God. As if the mightiest of God's creatures has a name that distinguishes him from the infinite God who is above him, altogether unique, infinitely above even the archangel. And so his name is who is like God. There's nobody like God, not Michael, not Gabriel, not the seraphim, not the cherubim, not man. But Christ made all these things. And he is the goal of creation. Verse 16 at the end says, and for him, and for him, God's glory is to be displayed in Christ. The triune Jehovah is to show himself in Christ. In Isaiah 45, Isaiah 45 and verse 21, we read, Tell ye, and bring them near, yea, let them take counsel together. Who hath declared this from ancient time? Who hath told it from that time? Have not I the Lord? And there is no God else beside me, a just God and a saviour. There is none beside me. Look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is none else. I have sworn by myself, the word is gone out of my mouth in righteousness, and shall not return, that unto me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear. Here Jehovah is speaking and he says that he is a just God and a saviour. How has Jehovah shown himself to be a just God and a saviour? In Christ Jesus. But then he goes on to show that Jehovah, as Jehovah, as the absolute sovereign, the independent eternal God with absolute authority, that he will vindicate his glory and his authority. So he says, I have sworn by myself, the word is gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return, that unto me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear. And how does Jehovah, how will Jehovah vindicate his authority and glory in the Lord Jesus Christ? So in Philippians chapter 2, Wherefore God also, verse 9, hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There the word Lord is used as the equivalent of Jehovah. The name Jehovah in the Old Testament, its meaning relates to God's absolute power and authority. And its association is with his covenant faithfulness and salvation. And Jehovah will show himself to be Jehovah in Christ Jesus. And so he saves in Christ and he judges by Jesus Christ. The Father hath committed all judgment unto the Son because he is the Son of Man. 
so that salvation is through Christ and the last judgment will be executed by the Lord Jesus as the Christ of God. And elect men and angels will worship him. Condemned men and angels will be constrained, though they still hate him, to acknowledge that he is the Lord, whether by grace in the case of his people or in judgment in the case of those not saved by Christ, yet every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he is Jehovah, to the glory of God the Father. And this Lord Jesus holds all things together, verse 17, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. He upholds all things by the word of his power. Everything is held in place by the power of God and by the power of the second person of the Godhead, the Lord Jesus Christ. So Christ is preeminent in creation. But then secondly, Christ, Christ's preeminence in redemption. Christ's preeminence in redemption. Verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. He is said to be the head of the body. Now there are two ways in which, or two aspects to this headship. Christ is the life-giving head. In 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, we have the, the picture of the body of Christ. And Christ is the head. He gives life to the church. The church's life comes entirely from him. He is the one who builds his church. He is the one who gives gifts to his church. He is the head of the church in that sense. And seeing that he is the one who, through whom spiritual life comes to men, it is through him that growth takes place. In other words, all that the church needs is to grow in him. And he is also the ruling head, that is, the authoritative head. He is the author of the church's life, but he also has authority over the church. So in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 23, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the saviour of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands. <coughs> In everything. The church is to be subject to Christ. To hear many discussions today on what the church should be doing. You wouldn't think the church had a head. Because the word of the Lord is not consulted. But he is the head of the church. What you do here. As a congregation. As a church. In this locality is to be subject to Christ. Christ tells the church what its functions are. Christ tells the church how to be governed. Christ tells the church how to worship. Christ tells the church who should be admitted and excluded in the discipline of the church. He is the king and head of the church. He said to the apostles, go and, uh, go and teach all nations teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. That's what matters. It's not what you like or what I like or what somebody else likes or what the world likes. It's what Christ has said must be done. That's all that matters in the church. That's all that matters.
And so if someone comes along and says, I think it would be a good idea to have dance and drama in the services, we say, well, you show us where Christ has said we should do these things and we'll do it. But if you can't, we'll not do it. Christ is head over all things to the church, Ephesians 1.22. That means he governs everything in the interests of the church. But within the church, there should be a conscious, hearty, willing submission to Christ as king. And Christ is the author of recreation. So our text goes on. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. The beginning, the firstborn from the dead. The source of the church's existence and all its blessings is Christ. We are blessed with all spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus. His resurrection marked the fact that he had borne the punishment of sin for his people. And he has purchased for them all the blessings of salvation. Effectual calling, bringing them to faith in Christ. Justification, adoption, sanctification, glorification, the resurrection of the body. These are all purchased by Christ for the elect of God. Deliverance from sin, from its guilt, from its dominion, ultimately from its presence and practice. When we're perfected in holiness in heaven and even from its bodily effects when this mortal shall put on immortality for If the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he shall also raise up your mortal bodies. These are blessings purchased by Christ and applied by his spirit, culminating in the resurrection glory of the last day. Because he died and rose again, these blessings come to the elect of God. And that's true even of those Believers who lived and died before Christ actually came and accomplished these things. Because the blessings he purchased for the elect were bestowed, as it were, in advance of his accomplishment upon the elect of God in the Old Testament. So Abraham rejoiced to see Christ's day and he saw it and was glad. Moses endured the reproach of Christ. They were believers in the coming Saviour. And he purchased all the blessings of salvation for them. And some of those blessings were bestowed even before the event. But it was certain that he would come and he would bear the guilt of sin. And so the Old Testament saints were effectually called and brought to faith in Christ who was yet to come and their sins were forgiven. And all fullness dwells in him, verse 19. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. The heretics, they were saying, the fullness of God is expressed in various spirit angelic emanations at least that was the later form that the error here seemed to take they were saying that the angelic world is the expression of the fullness of God that's why in chapter 2 verse 18 let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshipping of angels intruding into those things which he hath not seen vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind and not holding the head from which all the body by joints and bands having nourishment ministered and knit together increases with the increase of God. The apostle is saying all spiritual blessing 
is through holding the heritage in Christ. Whereas these men were saying, no, you need to have this special knowledge of the angelic world. And once you have that, you'll enter into the fullness. The apostle is saying, no, it's in Christ. All that we need is in Christ. Because the fullness of the Godhead dwells in him. The fullness of the Father's Godhead eternally dwells in the Son. As the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself. The eternal generation of the Son, unfathomable to our finite minds, that there is an eternal generation of the Son by the Father. That doesn't mean, you see, we, we, because we're finite creatures, we can't really grapple with the idea of these eternal, internal works of God. They're beyond us. But it is the case that there is an eternal generation of the Son by the Father. And the Spirit eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son. But there's no beginning to that. God was always triune. But that seems to be what this refers to. And reconciliation is in Christ. Verse 20. And having made peace through the blood of his cross. By him to reconcile all things unto himself. By him I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven, and you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. The obvious question here is, in what sense are all things reconciled? Everyone won't be saved. There will be goats as well as sheep. There will be glorified saints. And there will be the damned in hell. So in what sense are all things reconciled? And what about the fallen angels? They're not saved. There is no deliverance. Nor even a message of salvation addressed to them. Christ took not on him the nature of angels. He took on the seed of Abraham because it pleased God to redeem fallen men, not fallen angels. And the unfallen angels, they don't need salvation. They were elected to keep their first estate. So in what sense are all things reconciled? In the basic sense of the removal of warfare. Because the enemies of Christ, though they will be unrenewed and unsaved, will be utterly subdued. There will be no conflict. The damned will hate God forever. But they will not be able... To give any meaningful expression to that. And in that sense. Conflict will be at an end. Ephesians 1.10 speaks of. God gathering all things together in Christ. Summing up. Because when Christ comes. That will be the end of all conflict. But with respect to his people. There is a gracious reconciliation. Verse 21. And you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled. By wicked works. By nature we hated God and it showed. If you're not a Christian, you still hate God. You might love an imaginary God, but God as he really is, you hate him. That's your condition. And it says we were alienated. And here the reference is not to man but to God. It's speaking of God's wrath against us on account of our wicked works. 
And the reconciliation is Christ's bearing of wrath. In the place of his people. And renewing their hearts by the spirit. So that they trust in the saviour. And their sins are forgiven for his sake. And their guilt is removed. The father's action is spoken of. Having made peace. And the son's action. Through the blood of his cross. is bearing the guilt of sin. And the goal of this reconciliation, verse 22, in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. The bearing of guilt paves the way not only for justification but for sanctification because without Christ bearing the guilt of sin and the guilt of our, our guilt in Adam of his first transgression imputed to us. There could be no deliverance from that bondage to sin. Which is part of God's judgment upon man on account of that first transgression. That's why the apostle in Romans 8. He says there is now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit, for what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son for sin, and in the likeness of sinful flesh, condemned sin, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. Now what that is telling us is, that Christ's bearing of the guilt of sin, is essential to the bestowment of the blessing of sanctification. Because our bondage to sin is part of the divine judgment upon man's guilt in Adam. And therefore Christ's death on the cross purchases justification and sanctification for the elect of God. Now sanctification being actually made holy begins with the new birth which brings us to faith in Christ and forgiveness of sins. It goes on through the Christian life and it is completed when we're in heaven. But it's a blessing purchased by Christ. And that brings us thirdly, Christ's preeminence and the Christian life. Christ's preeminence and the Christian life. You might say, well, this is all very well, very interesting, but what does it mean? What does it mean for our Christian life? It means a great deal and vitally important. You can see the importance of it in verse 23. Or reading verse 29. Whereunto I also labour, striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily. For I would that ye knew what great conflict I have for you, and for them at Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. The apostle says, I have great conflict. This wasn't just a, a theological treatise to be shelved. What he's saying is of vital importance to their Christian life. That Christ is preeminent in creation. That Christ is preeminent as the Redeemer, as the head of the body, is vital. When he speaks of conflict, it's a word from which we get our word agonize. The agon was the, was the, uh, the arena, the place where the people met, and then it came to be the place where they met for the games. And of course in the games they strove for victory. And that's where the word agonizing comes in. You know how athletes, how they agonize and they go through pain. Striving for success. Well that's how the apostle agonized for the welfare of the church at Colossae. And so he's telling them all this 
so that they'll see that spiritual progress consists in growth in Christ. Not in this nonsense, this imaginary nonsense and supposed knowledge of the intricacies of the angelic world. It's in knowing Christ, in seeing the excellency, the glory of Christ that we progress. So in chapter 2, verse 2, that their hearts might be comforted, being knit together in love, and to all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Verse 6, As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. Verse 9, For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power, and so on. He's saying, beware. Beware lest any man beguile you through philosophy and vain deceit, through science falsely so called. These heretics, they claim great knowledge. But it's nonsense and it's useless. And it won't cause you to progress in the Christian life. It won't make you holy. What you need is more of Christ. You need to be rooted and built up in him. You need more of the knowledge of him. More appreciation of his greatness, his glory, his loveliness. Not this nonsense that these men claim. That's why we should have a holy antagonism to man-made religion. A holy antagonism to man-made religion. Chapter 2, verse 4. And this I say, lest any man should beguile you with vain deceit. Verse 8, chapter 2. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world and not after Christ. We should have within us that fear of the Lord and that gut and antagonism to man-made religion in doctrine or practice. Man-made religion will not just do us no good, it will do us harm. So in verse 20 of chapter 2, Wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why, as though living in the world, are ye subject to ordinances, touch not, taste not, handle not, which all are to perish with the using, after the commandments and doctrines of men, which things have indeed a show of wisdom in will worship and humility and neglecting of the body, not in any honour to the satisfying of the flesh. This man-made, these man-made regulations, these man-made doctrines of these false teachers, they're impressive, but they're useless and worse than useless because they're not from Christ. They don't teach you Christ. They don't build you up in the knowledge of Christ, in faith in Christ, in love to Christ, in adoration of Christ. And they're the very things that we need if we're Christians. If you're not Christian, you need to come to the knowledge of Christ. If you are a Christian, you need more of Christ. And this is the great business of the Christian life. Chapter 3. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above not on things on the earth. For if ye are dead, ye and your life, for ye are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. 
When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. Mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth. How are we going to mortify? How are we going to hate sin if we don't increase in the knowledge of Christ? Yes, we need to know what sin is. We need the definitions of the word of God spelling out clearly what is right and what is wrong. But that on its own will not make us hate sin. Surely you all know that. Whenever did knowing that something was wrong make us hate it? It doesn't. It might trouble our consciences about doing it. It never stops us wanting to do it. You know that, surely. It's only as we're taken up with Christ. Let's set your affections on things which are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Our hearts need to be taken up with Christ. Then we'll hate sin. But you can't hate sin in a vacuum. Doesn't matter how much we know something is wrong. We'll still love it. If, it is not, if our love of sin is by the grace of God not displaced by love to Christ. 